Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. Today we're joined by spoken word poet Andrea Gibson. We discuss staying with what is, the unflinching gaze, and gratitude as a time machine to the present. So welcome back to fucking canceled. Welcome back to fucking canceled. Today we are joined by Andrea Gibson. How exciting. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Thanks for having me, y'all. I'm excited to be here. Um, so do you want to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and your work for our listeners in case there's anyone who is not familiar? Yeah, I'm sure there are lots of people who are not familiar. So, <laughs> so um, I've, been a, uh, I've been a spoken word artist for, I guess, about two decades now. I think I, I fell in love with spoken word in 1999. And um, I think around 2004, I started touring and I spent most of two decades just on the road, traveling all over the world, reading poems about Everything. I mean, and I say everything because my partner Meg is always teasing me about how there isn't a topic I haven't written on. <laughs> you know, she's like the mental health of veterinarians. Like, yes, I've written on that. All <laughs> there, there isn't, there isn't something I haven't written on. And um, yeah, so that was my life. Um, I loved it. I was. It, it terrified me. We could get into that if we want to in the future, but. Um, I was really afraid of public speaking and it never got any easier. In all those years, it never got mm. easier. And I think there was something about being afraid of it that made me keep doing it for so long. I think that I watched other poets get bored and um, and stop and I just I just kept being afraid of it. So I kept doing it and I, and I loved it. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I think almost exactly two years ago now, I got diagnosed with ovarian cancer, a very aggressive form of ovarian cancer. Um, it had, I knew from the beginning, it had a two-year life expectancy. I'm at two years now. And so I've been mostly in treatment for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it has changed what I talk about in my work a lot. Um, I think it sort of shocked people that I got a cancer diagnosis and then just started talking a lot about joy and gratitude. Mm. And, um, and, and that's a lot of what I've been doing. So I've not, um, I've been in treatment, my immune system is weakened. And so I'm not on the road anymore. So I've taken a lot of my work to my newsletter and to, uh, into the internet and just Mm -hmm. sharing what I'm creating. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I feel like I, I'm not really in the spoken word world, but I feel like just being like a queer person, I've obviously heard your name and I feel like you were floating around on the periphery of my awareness. And then I guess I kind of just recently connected to your work through social media and I don't even know how as so often is the way with social media. I'm like somehow or another you came across my radar. Um, well, and- I've been following you. I've been following you for a while. And so I, I probably was, uh, yeah, following you and then liking all your stuff and then I I don't know what happened but well I think what it is is that the name like ding something in my subconscious because I'm just like Andrea Gibson that's like I don't know you're like gay famous you know and so definitely gay famous (laughs) 
And so I was like, wait a second, like I know this name. And so I like looked into you and then, yeah, I just, uh, in preparation for this interview, I was just listening to the audio of You Better Be Lightning, which is your most recent book. Um, and honestly, it's so beautiful to listen to on the audio because you're reading it. Um, mm. And like, I can really see how you're a spoken word poet and the way that that comes through in the audio. So I was like, just wanted to say that for the listeners. If you want to dive in, I really recommend listening to the audio. Mm. Awesome. Uh, thank you for saying that because I was a little bit, I, I, I've i never listened to it myself because I had just done, I had just done my first round of chemo and they didn't know if I was mm -hmm. going to be able to it was so wild. I was like, let's just keep going. Let's do another book. Let's do another mm -hmm. one. Let's just read them all. Um, but thank you. I'm glad. I've never heard it myself, but I'm glad that it, it comes across. And I've always thought of my writing as I write for things to live out loud. I feel like I, I write more like a songwriter would where I'm constantly paying attention mm -hmm. to sound. And so mm. I'm glad it, I'm glad it sounds good. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us more about that. Talk to us about poetry. Like why poetry? What, what draws you to that medium and in particular spoken word poetry? You know, uh, Maya Angelou said years ago, an unspoken poem is a half finished poem. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, mm. yes, people have, whenever I've said it, people will argue with me about it. And, and I get it. I get, <laughs> I get, I get the argument. Um, but I just love, you know, even if we're, we're, first of all, the thing I love about the art forum and people hate it when I say this, but I'm going to, I'll just say it anyway. I think anybody can do it. Like, I love mm. that I do an art forum that I really feel like anybody could do. Like I've gone into do writing workshops with youth who have never written a poem in their lives. And, and the stuff that they come out with in the first 10 minutes of just writing for the first time, it's so, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps because I'm just remembering mm. some of the things that they, they wrote. How and, many um, goosebumps? There's just so many goosebumps. <laughs> All the goosebumps. An infinity of goosebumps. Um but I just I I just love that I feel like it's so accessible to a lot of people. Mm. Um, and I, you know, when I first when I first heard it, the first time I went to a poetry slam, I just thought, I can't think of anything that's gonna terrify me more to do. And there's I know I'm gonna do this. I just know I'm gonna do it. I loved that the audience was engaged. I loved that poets were commonly memorizing their poems. And so there was so much eye contact and it felt like a conversation. Mm. I don't know if the audience always knows how much of the, the poem they are pulling out of the poet and how dependent the poet is upon the audience. And so that it's just this energetic exchange in a way that I hadn't seen at the time in many other art forms. And I just loved it. And I also loved you know, I don't think people's minds change very easily or quickly, but I kept noticing that my heart was changing instantaneously. Mm. Like when I would hear a poem and then my mind would eventually catch up. And so I have all these ideas about what I thought I believed or what I thought. And then, phew, that would go out the door in three minutes. And suddenly I would have a whole new perspective on life. So, yeah, I just I love the art form and it, and, and I love it more every year. That's so beautiful. I really think that that comes through in your work because I think you have heart wisdom. And I think that that, that like, there's like different levels of like, you know, intelligence. We have like intellectual ways of thinking about things, but like there's heart wisdom, you know, and I think that that's so lacking and it really fucking comes through in your work. So yeah. And poetry really does have a way of just like good poetry anyway, of like reaching directly into your guts and just kind of like mm -hmm. yanking you, you know, there's such a need for that. Yeah. Um, Another thing I really love about your work 
that came through in You Better Be uh, Lightning is your passion for queer youth. And mm-hmm. you were just talking about doing workshops with youth. And uh, I dropped out of school when I was a teenager. I came out of the closet in 2002. And I think you're like 11 years young, older than me. And so, um, you know, you were probably doing that even earlier than I was. And it was a time I dropped out of school in large part due to the homophobia I was experiencing. And I moved to Toronto and went to a queer youth like alternative school for like queer youth that had been driven out of the mainstream school system. So it really like resonated with me, the protective love that you are expressing um, for queer youth. So can you just talk to me about that, maybe about your own experience being a young queer person and also why uh, supporting queer youth is so important to you? Yeah, great question. Um <clears throat> Well, the place where I grew up, it was a, it was a really rural, conservative uh, place. I knew no other queer people growing up. I had a, I had a gym teacher who was out. Well, not out, but gay. And then, and I was really excited about her. It's so cliche to say it was my gym teacher. I know, I know. <laughs> um, I was really excited about her. But then she decided she wasn't gay anymore, and she left to be a Christian missionary in Africa. Oh, no. And it's like, so I had no more queer. I mean, it. And at the time, it was. You know, the world was not that it's not that it's great everywhere now, but I mean, people were still assuming that Melissa Etheridge was straight, like Ellen was Mm -hmm. still straight, you know, for all we knew. And so it wasn't that it was uh, necessarily a hateful environment. It was just like nobody knew, like Mm -hmm. nobody knew anything, you know, and I didn't either. And so I think I understood my gender sooner than I understood Mm. my sexuality. Uh, But when I finally came out, I think um, I fell in, I had fallen in love with my best friend when I was 15. And then we eventually got together when we were 20, she came out first. And, um, and we were so terrified. I mean, I was so terrified. I was going to a Catholic uh, college at the time. Mm. I was playing basketball there. Our our mascot, we were actually called the Lady Monks. So, I mean, which is really queer in in retrospect. Like a lot of gay in that (laughs) sense. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, but I was so scared. I mean, I remember I, I would walk into, I would walk into bars queer bars the first time I would go to go into them. And I remember feeling as afraid to be seen as I was afraid to be shot because I thought my life is over either way. And please let no one see me. I was just so, so Mm. afraid. Um, And when I finally found queer community and I finally started finding queer art, it meant so much to me. Mm. It changed my world to read um, to read books, to listen to music by queer people. And so it was the first thing. It was the very first thing that I started writing about when I discovered uh, slam and spoken word. It was just all I had to talk about was um, was queerness and how to create safer communities, loving communities, how to undo the shame that was embedded in all of us. And now I'm looking at youth which are going through similar things now and also different things and mm-hmm. more extreme and it, it's it's such um it's it's so much and it's also beautiful like one of the conversations that I keep hearing people have that has inspired me so much is um this idea like you know we have this all everybody's debating about transness and um do you hear that I just do you hear that sound 
It's thundering so loud, and I oh, hope wow. that's okay for the podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's, so there's like know. a very faint crackle. Yeah. It's yeah, okay. 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 <laughs> Meg's not breaking stuff upstairs. It's the actual thunder. <laughs> um, what was the last thing I said? Do you all remember? Um, uh, you said the word transness. Oh, yeah. You were talking oh. about the, the people arguing about transness. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, um, and, one of the conversations that I, I keep hearing about it that I, I find so beautiful is just this idea that um, we're beginning to ask our children who they are instead of telling them who they are. And, you know, you ask somebody's name, you ask somebody's pronouns, like these things to me um, are going to stretch beyond our lifespan and they're going to have so much impact on, on everyone to start to say, who are you? I think that is such a vital, beautiful mm. question instead of saying this is who you are. So, mm. um, yeah, I'm con it's, I think it's the one theme in my work that is just always there and I never stop thinking about or feeling about. Mm. I love that a lot. Um, just to pull something else out of your, your book, um, tell me, tell us about the practice of writing a love poem to someone you're mad at. Um, what does that do for you? <laughs> so I think that you're referring to a year of no grudges um, <clears throat> in the book. What's interesting about that is, uh, so that was actually, I wrote that poem for a friend who, when I wrote that poem for that friend, I was, uh, that friend was actually in the middle of a huge public call out. And oh. he was, he was really, um, he was really low. I was really afraid that he wasn't, I was, uh, to, I, I was afraid he wasn't going to survive it. I, I didn't know if he was going to live through it. He was rock bottom. And, um, and then he did this thing that pissed me. I was so, <laughs> so mad. I was so mad at him. And I thought, God, this dude can't handle more right now. Mm. And so let me see, let me see where I can get within myself wow. because I'm also not somebody that's going to hide my anger. If that's the only place I can get, you know, I'll, I'll mm -hmm. express it. And so I sat down and, um, and I just started writing him a love poem. And I just started by writing all the things that I appreciated about him. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was about 10 minutes into this process and my anger was gone. It was just gone. My whole being was filled with love and gratitude for him. All of what had happened had just fallen off of me. And my therapist had always told me that the only thing we have control over in this life is where we put our attention. And mm. it was one of those moments where I thought, yes, this is right, because I'm putting my attention on what I appreciate about him. And then also in doing that, I started to like myself more. It's really difficult to dislike people when you're really liking yourself. You know, you just have such ease with it. Or I do. I don't want to speak for other people. But whenever I'm liking myself... Um, it's just, it's so easy for me to like people and understand. And then I could understand the mistake he had made and all of this. And so that's where that, that's where that poem came from. But it's been a practice that I've been doing ever since. If I get mad at somebody or angry, I'm, and I'm also somebody that will express my anger. You know, I'm not, um, I've never been. I've never been somebody who mutes my anger if I mm. feel it. I just have a practice of trying to express my anger without blame. Blame and anger are two different things for me. Mm. And so, um, and so, yeah, I do that now. If I if I'm angry, I just start writing lists of what I appreciate. That's such a beautiful practice. Yeah, I really love that. It's like praying yeah. for somebody when they piss yeah. you off. 
Totally. Yeah. yeah. No, it it really is. It's like a prayer. And I've always thought of poems as prayers. Mm. And so, yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Because in uh, 12 step, Jay and I both do 12 step programs. And that's one of the things they get you to do. Like when you have resentments for someone, you pray for them and you like, mm. you do an active practice of wishing for that person, all the things that you would want for yourself. Um yeah. That's yeah, beautiful. And, and it's like really hard at first, but then you kind of get used to doing it because every time you want to complain to your sponsor about someone, like your sponsor's like, okay, and so what do you wish for them? Like you're like, ah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. God, I love that. You know, I was listening, I, I listened to all these near-death experiences um mm. on YouTube. And one of the the consistent things that keeps coming up is this idea that we think that um, you know, these people will whatever when they're when they're at the portal and they're seeing the and they're seeing the light one of the things when they go through their uh what did I do wrong in this life or what did I do that mm. hurt people and um commonly what they'll say is uh what they'll be told by their guides or spirits or whatever they see is that um human beings don't really understand what actually is doing the most damage and one of the things that's doing the most damage to other people are our thoughts about other people mm. and our thoughts are actually living energy things that even if we never say them out loud they attach to other people and they impact the course of their life and so ever since I heard that I I keep watching my own thoughts mm. <laughs> and now I have to watch them pretty closely it's amazing and just the human beingness of our human beingness how how totally. often our you know, our judgments or criticisms or mm -hmm. all of that are just constantly popping up. Absolutely. So another quote from um, You Better Be Lightning, there is no escaping the magic now. Beauty caught up with me and never let me go. Um, so much of your writing is about allowing yourself to be open and to be awed by the beauty in the world. Why do you think that so many people's hearts are closed to that beauty? And what do you think helps people to open our hearts to it? So I'll tell you a secret about that poem, or I'll tell you a secret about my writing. This, I'm sure this is a very secret space and you all won't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> you know, my writing, what I did for most of my life was I didn't always write where I was. I commonly wrote where I mm. wanted to be, and then I mm. tried to follow the poem towards the life that I wanted. Mm. So when I was writing You Better Be Lightning, I actually felt, I mean, this this book came out before my, or I guess in the first days of my diagnosis, but it was written long before my diagnosis. Mm. But I felt something coming. Like I'd always felt like, um, I'd always felt, I had always felt like I was going to get cancer when I, at 45 years old. And uh, I had said it to Meg. I, I just had always felt that I was. And so I wrote this book trying to talk about human beings in the way that I, with a, with a whole lens, but with this particular poem, um, this was what I was striving, where I was striving to be. I knew this was how I wanted to live and I still wasn't, uh, fully there, but what was wild is as soon as I got diagnosed, then boom, I was there. This poem um, was uh, an aspiration before I got diagnosed, mm -hmm. and then I got diagnosed, and oh, my goodness, just beauty everywhere. And so your question, you know, I think for one, um, especially in the in the community in, in in political communities, folks on the left, I had been experiencing sort of um, 
a pressure to not be happy, uh, for mm -hmm. lack of a better way of saying it. Like, um, I, I wrote about it once, I think, in saying there was this idea that we were more holy, we were more pure, the more hurt we were. It was like almost as if I could feel people um, sort of a collect, collecting identities or, or oppressions in a way, or I, I was even watching it on myself as a mm -hmm. means to be safe. And what I started to see over time was look at what this is doing, particularly particularly to youth. If you're creating this narrative mm -hmm. where you're saying that, um, you know, because even the idea of, for example, a quote I used to love, like, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Right. That is true for a lot of people. People, some people, when they pay attention, they're outraged. Right. For me, I now know that if I'm outraged, I'm not paying attention. Because mm -hmm. when I'm paying attention, my heart goes to this really expansive place of love. And that's where I have the most to offer from. So not to argue with those words, but to just say it's different for everybody. But I think that we had this across the board idea that you had to be grieving, you had to be uh, angry, you had to be afraid, you had to be all of these things to be an addition to um positive change to be able mm -hmm. to make a difference in the world. So I think that was one of the first things that we, that I was noticing uh, that was happening. Another thing that I noticed that I was doing was I, I prided myself. I prided myself on this idea that I had all my feelings. I made merch items about it. I'm like, I'm somebody that has all my feelings. And then I figured out that I had spent my whole life, like a lot of my life, especially my political life, Mm. pushing away joy. And I had mm. no idea that I had been pushing away joy. And so um, as soon as I got conscious of that, it was way, way easier to um, just recognize when I was doing that. And then I was just a way more open vehicle to having joy um, in my life. But the other thing is, is for me, I had this like experience that it's just so hard to put into words, but almost the instant I was diagnosed with cancer, um, almost yeah, instantaneously, I felt like I was graced with this understanding that I hadn't had before. It was almost like somebody had taken out my heart <laughs> and put in a way, it was almost somebody put in a way softer heart. And mm. um, with that soft heart, I just suddenly started living in the present moment where I wasn't in the past and I wasn't in the future. I was just in the moment I was in. And when you're in the moment that you're in, it's so, so difficult to not appreciate because you're like, wow, what made the trees made me what? And I just started noticing all of this beauty. And the next thing was, I just could feel that I had to be cherished to have been made. Like I just could feel that we all were cherished uh, to have been made. And that sort of undid that sense of unlovability that comes mm -hmm. with, um, that comes with trauma. I mean, we, mm -hmm. you know, trauma sort of convinces us that we're bad and, uh, and that went away. I'm going to get this mm -hmm. thing to wipe the sweat off my face. Cause I'm just so you know, I'm going to be, I have, I had a radical hysterectomy. I love calling it a radical hysterectomy and i just have hot flashes all the time. Cause I got no ovaries. Oh yeah. No problem. Um, all right. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like, um, 
it's part of what I really resonate with in, in your work. And it's interesting that you say you weren't there yet when you wrote the poem, but it was like a calling towards that or mm-hmm. orienting yourself towards that aspirational. Um, and I feel like in my life, there's a part of me that is so naturally like this, like so naturally mm-hmm. open to the world, but it has been so hardened by experiences and by like just like a coldness and callousness and like a dismissal of that kind of like earnest open-heartedness um Mm. and but that is my true self like 100 I am an earnest open-hearted being and honestly this morning I was walking my dog Clover and I I put in my earphones and that poem came on the first one Mm. I just started crying (laughs) I just started crying on the street I immediately got tears because I was like yes Look around. Look at the flowers. Look at the bees. Yes. They're everywhere. I mean, there's so much to the natural world. I know so much. And even everything. I mean, like you get to this place where you start being like, I, I, I heard somebody else say it where you get into your car and the car starts and you're like, this car just started and it will take me anywhere. <laughs> you know, all of these little miracles, a car starting is a miracle. Yeah. Everything is, there's so much, you know, I think mm, Einstein yeah. said you could look at everything. You could look at life. You could walk through life thinking everything is a miracle. You could walk through life thinking nothing is a mm. miracle. And I'm like, why choose nothing? Why mm. choose nothing? That's so boring. <laughs> I love um, what you said about out- outrage too. Just like, you know, yeah, like that saying, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention is like so i feel like it's so emblematic of like mm. the the political culture of like an entire generation of of people who think of themselves as being on the left you know um but yeah it's like it's so it's not it's not sustainable mm. to be outraged forever like how do you even do that you can't do it right it's like it's yeah. like it's like um trying to be like vigilant forever or something as uh yeah we were just talking to somebody else and doing another interview and, and he was pointing that out you can't you can't be vigilant about everything forever right or because then you're not vigilant anymore um yeah. and yeah if you're just stuck in this permanent place of outrage like how are you even supposed to function and i think that a lot of people who yeah get their eyes opened to a lot of the like really like awful things that are going on and feel that outrage as they should right if they if they have never sort of like realized it before but then 10 years later if you're still sort of just like stuck in that how are you supposed to go on you know and people either like drop out or they drop the outrage often you know totally Um, yeah I mean we I was part of I was part of a group called Vox Feminista for almost 10 years and I love this group Uh, the people I was the youngest person in the group when I first got in Um, everybody was about a generation older than myself and they had been activists for decades i mean they're you know they're in their 70s now and um mm-hmm. i learned so much from them and i was just that was where i learned to i don't know we have poly- <laughs> like my my values my political values mm-hmm. with my art and I, I i i thought of them as like raising me in a way but over time i saw because i mean i just watched person after person after person burn out it Mm. it's not sustainable it was just you know eating there was no um inner peace you know and and that's the thing that i've learned for myself now that there is such a need for some sort of nourishing of our inner beings and uh, just considering our own wellness our own um I don't know, like even the word rest, the idea of resting only found me in these last two years, you Mm. know, and just this, this constant charge. It wasn't just 
it wasn't even, I mean, even if some of it was, it was just like never slowing down. Like there mm. always something, always something to be angry about. And that doesn't mean there isn't <laughs> so much stuff that you could get angry about at any minute, but in terms of individuals, yeah, I just never watched it being sustainable. Yeah, totally. And okay. So on, I want to talk about this kind of like spiritual aspect of it. Um, like, okay. So you wrote bitterness is the easiest way to leave the world having only a near life experience, which is a beautiful line. Um, and I think plugs, perfectly into what we were just saying talk, talk to us about bitterness like what is it and why does it close us off from life I think the main reason it closed me off to life mm -hmm. was because to be bitter I had to almost always be in the past like mm. it's about <laughs> I, I was never in the moment that I was in so that was the the first thing that I was always somewhere else other than where I was. So I don't, I don't have very many ecstatic experiences when I'm living in the past. And I also don't have them very much even living in the future. Mm. It's just the moment to me is, is the gift of this life. So, so that's the first thing. The other thing was, is whenever I was holding a grudge, it was like I couldn't hold anything else at the same time. Like I couldn't hold somebody else well. And even I couldn't hold the people that I wasn't even having the grudge with. <laughs> like I couldn't, I, I couldn't say I had a grudge with my friend. I, I wasn't fully present with my partner. Mm. And I also wasn't holding um, myself well. And then the other thing is, is I think with bitterness, and I've been trying to find new ways to uh, talk about this, but it's like, the sense of you're constantly protecting yourself, like you're constantly on guard. And, and, and I think we become bitter to shield ourselves. And my therapist has talked about that shield as whenever we are, are shielding ourselves like that, it's, it's, it's this very, very fragile sort of shell. It's very breakable. And so with that sort of protecting ourselves, we're not actually safer. We're, mm -hmm. we're more in danger because we're, we're, not free. I think, I think safety or the idea of safety and the way that I had been relating to it of just like, who can I keep away? <laughs> who can I keep away? What can I keep away? It mm. just, it was its own sort of prison. It was, I was locked in safety was imprisoning me, uh, I will say. Mm. And I just never relaxed and I never, um, and I also never, in that sort of bitterness, it was just, it's just not true. You know, there, I, I'm interested in truth <laughs> and a bitterness is never true. It's an mm -hmm. idea about somebody. It's like you're toxing your own mind with ideas about people and it's deciding your, you know, what you think is absolutely right. And that's what would happen to me, at least. I would mm -hmm. become critical or, or judgmental and it just never felt good. It never mm. felt good to me. If ever it felt good to me in a real way, other than that just sort of superficial surface way where I'm like, oh, well, you know how mad feels better than grief? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I'm like, mad can make you feel like energized and grief is yeah. just like, ah. Oh. And 
um, what I started doing was just searching for the real true feeling behind the bitterness. And oftentimes um, it really wasn't anger. It was just a sadness or it was some kind of fear. Usually when I think I'm feeling a feeling, that's not really the feeling I'm feeling. I'm feeling right. a different one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to pull it out some more. So you talk about like, um, regret keeping you in the past, worry sending you to the future and that gratitude is a time machine to the present. And so can you talk to us about gratitude and also the connection between gratitude and the present? Because a lot of what you're saying is about, it seems like you've landed in the present. Um, and that seems to be very central and important to the way that you're seeing the world. And here you're saying that gratitude is a big piece of that. So want us take us there. Yeah, gratitude is a big piece for it. But I think for me, the biggest part of gratitude, because there are some things that are very easily easy to be grateful for, you mm. know, and I think through cancer, the thing that I am learning is how transformative it's almost like a portal for me if i can mm. find a place where i can be grateful for something that i have been taught is impossible is impossible to be grateful for if in any moment i can find gratitude for a, a really challenging thing what happens to me and i've heard other people talk about this too is there is no other portal like that to this sense of just pure peace and it happened it happened with my diagnosis it would happen with different things like I would get chemo scalp and um just that mm. I mean I don't even want to describe it but it's, it's absolutely terrible it was this just a massive infection on your head and the pain of it and then then finding gratitude in those moments. And it's not this sort of flippant gratitude. Mm -hmm. It's like deep gratitude. And usually for me, it's, um, it's a lesson. For example, right now, uh, I'm on a drug that is impacting my vision. And, um, and then at first, when it started to impact my vision, I was like, Oh, my goodness, how, how am I going to find gratitude for this? Because I was like, No, this one is hard, because there were days where, um, it was even hard to type. And I thought, is this going to take away writing? Like mm. what happens at that point? You know, because I've been able to find gratitude for everything so far. And then I'm like, can I find gratitude for not being able to write? And yes, I have. So, <laughs> I mean, and you think, no, I can't, like, I can't even with that. And, and then, so I started doing a podcast with my friend and um, just mm. finding, and then I started writing songs and, it's just once you commit to it, and I, I, this is the thing that I'm constantly trying to talk to my friends about, and they're constantly blowing me off. They won't, they won't, they won't take this in, but I, I cannot tell you the magic it is if you can find gratitude in a moment where you've been taught that it cannot be found. It transforms your life like nothing else. Like it is extraordinary what it does you know, finding gratitude for, I mean, in the chemo room and when I'm so sick, the kindness of the mm. cancer nurses are incredible. And so those sort of moments, it's just, it just has opened up my whole spirit. And if I have to point to one thing, um, I think it has been that process of like, I commit to looking for this and almost always it's a lesson. And so much has been through cancer. I mean, it's it's a strange thing to say, but it's been so healing for me. It's and 
it's hard for people to hear sometimes because, you mm -hmm. know, I just, I just found, I mean, I went to the doctor and they said, um, the cancer is considered incurable at this point. And, um, and so now I'm in this process of, um, of finding gratitude for my own mortality, finding mm. gratitude for death, which there is so much, there is so much there for some reason that thing is, is so simple for me. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that we don't live to be, can you imagine living 3000 years? Like, can you imagine yeah. like that sounds like that just sounds wrong. <laughs> and I think also it's like somebody's saying, um, you know, like the universe said, it gives you two slices of pizza and you're, and you're like, and then they're like, okay, that's all the pizza you get. And I think about, can you imagine me saying what? Like, that's not fair. That's cruddy. And, and this doesn't mean I don't grieve. I think that's the mm -hmm. hard thing uh, for people to understand is they yes. think, they think that, um, this means that I'm, I'm being toxically positive or I'm turning away from grief. No, I feel like I'm looking right at the thing, right at the thing, um, just looking closer at it and, and finding finding the beauty that is there. Yeah, that comes through so strongly in, in your work. And I have a question for you about that in a couple questions. So we're okay. going gonna to jump back into it in, in a second. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like you're like just independently reinventing the 12 steps um true. in poetry form yeah um, there's a lot there's a lot of resonance it's true. yeah like really a mm. lot like the gratitude thing is like so important and trying to live in the present and not not the future or the past you know um yeah. you should start uh, a religion <laughs> yes i will i mean i always i always thought i'd be a great cult leader so i'll get on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would I would join honestly. Um no, but uh on a more serious note, like I think that something that really comes through in your work is this ability you have to look at the kind of like contradictions in life and and pull something out of them or just to look at them head on like you were saying, you know. Um the title poem of your book, uh You Better Be Lightning, tells a really powerful and complicated story about love that really struck us mm. um and you say in the in the poem that there's no moral uh to the story and i think that there's a message in that 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 i really liked um can you tell just tell us that story would you do that for yeah. us yeah it's really funny i always forget why i named the book you better be lightning until mm. i hear that until i uh, <laughs> i read that poem somewhere um yeah that that poem tells it i mean i don't even know if it's a poem it's it's sort of like a short story but uh, it tells the story of an ex-girlfriend of mine um whose parents really struggled with uh, struggled to welcome her as a as a queer person they were quite homophobic they were scared they didn't really know what to do and she was old, i mean she was older than me and so i think she was over 50 at the time i think and uh, we were going to one of my shows one day and she's like, oh my God, she got a text. And she's like, my parents are saying they want to come to the show. And I, wah, I was so scared. I was, I could not believe it. And I'm like, okay, okay, let's see how this goes. And it was a wild, I mean, this place was so punk. It was, it was so, the venue itself was just amazing. Everybody was queerer than queer. And there were her parents in the back, just and looking very uncomfortable. And, <laughs> um, but but right before the show, uh, somebody had handed me a flyer for a protest. It was about to protest fracking in the state. We were in Connecticut. And um, and they asked me to announce this protest at the end of the show. And I said, absolutely. And then my partner was standing right beside me. And she said, 
uh, and, and I said, what? And she's like, honey, fracking is why my dad has a job. And I knew he had worked in oil and gas and I, he wasn't a rich dude. He was, I, I didn't know you could actually be poor and work in oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I was like, oh, okay. okay. And I'm like, I can't not announce the protest. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I know. And I'm like, but I'm thinking these people are coming to their first queer event. They're around queer people for the first time in their lives. Like they're meeting me for the first time and they're still homophobic. And then I'm going to get on the mic. And so it was so complex, but I was like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to read it. And I go through the whole show and I'm watching them and, I'm, and I can tell that night, every poem I read was about love. Like I usually do a, a very political set and every poem I read that night was about love. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was really emotional because I could see them in the back of the room and I could see their, I, I could like feel their hearts open. Mm -hmm. You know, I could feel that it was going to impact something. And so at the end of the show, I look down at like the protest notes and then I look back at them and I made the decision to walk off the stage without announcing the protest. And I got up to the green room and I felt like such a failure. I felt I was so down on myself. I was I was just heartbroken about the whole situation. And I'm in there. I don't know if if I was crying or not, but I was upset. And then her dad just busts through the green room door and this guy is giant. <laughs> he's just giant and he's in his mid 70s and he's just got tears pouring down his face. And he said, you know, I'm 76 years old and I just tonight figured out what love is. And we hugged and, you know, and then he left and then they, their family had this moment and, and I sat with it after <clears throat> and I was like, you know, and I think that the thing you're, I say in the end of the poem is there is no moral to the story. And I think what I'm talking about is I don't know that I did anything right. And and I think that we have this idea that, um, or we don't, I don't think y'all do, I, I don't, <laughs> of like what rightness is and what is the mm -hmm. right thing to do in each moment. And for me, I just felt into my heart in that moment. And I knew um, that um, what felt like love in that moment for me was to not announce it. And I still, I don't know if that was right. Mm. And I also felt like, and I don't know what I would do the next time. Like the next time, like it could be the next night I'd be on that mic. And for whatever reason, what would feel like the most loving thing to do in that moment would be to announce the protest. Like I have no idea. And so it felt good to me because I'm also in the spoken word community. There's a lot of, um, you know, just uh, sometimes just some presenting ourselves as, you know, having it all figured out and we're doing the right thing. And it felt because of that, I think it felt important for me to put in writing something that I had done that I, I didn't necessarily have any idea if it was the right thing. It was just what my heart chose in that moment. I love that so much. Um, Clementine always talks about how you should always save the girl first and then save the world. <laughs> Oh, um, yeah. And yes. I feel like that's exactly what you did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. It's a perfect way to put it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I do always say that. Um, 
But yeah, it's it really struck me too because I think that like in social justice culture, you know, it's almost as if people are like, here's this like, you know, very straightforward set of rules that you can follow for like complex, like ethical, like and like relational situations. And if you don't do it, you're uh... like a horrible person and will destroy your life. Yeah. But it's like in reality, like real relationships and like ethical questions are like really fucking nuanced and complex and like also like the relational aspect does matter and it that gets thrown out so much in social justice culture with these rules you know where you see people like there's literally infographics that go around that are basically like if you don't tell off your uncle at thanksgiving like fuck you you know and like the idea that like that that the relationship could also be a component here that is at least worth considering. And like, I like that you stay in the ambiguity of not taking a stance that it's, that it's necessarily right or wrong, but that it felt like the most loving thing. I think that that is like very like mature and like honest. And I just think, yeah, like real life is not a set of rules and yeah, it's a beautiful story. So thank you for sharing it. Yeah. I love how you put that because I, you know, I, I don't, I, I think folks have had trouble with that poem and I don't, I don't feel in any way defensive about it. And it feels, I'm just like, yes, like I understand why you hate the poem and, <laughs> you know, and, um, and I do think that there is so much nuance and we've sort of, we have, we have abandoned nuance and, in so many toxic ways. And it's heartbreaking because that's abandoning our humanity and um, yeah. yeah. You went like leaps and bounds with this guy in that one night, you know, a guy whose heart has been closed to queerness, like opened it. And it's like, maybe we'll get to fracking, you know, like, it's like, maybe one day he will be ready to hear that. Maybe mm -hmm. not right now. But like, if you had probably, if you had said that at the end, the door would have slammed in his face for the openness that he was feeling, right? And the idea that like, people can't necessarily take everything on, like the process is unfolding as we learn to open our hearts. And obviously the places where we feel the most like, uh, like vulnerable and scared are the places that it's the hardest for us to open our hearts. And so obviously employment or like your, your financial security under capitalism is a place where people feel defensive because yeah. that they are scared, they are insecure. And so it's hard for them to have an open heart in the face of that. And I think, yeah, like, you know, we're, we're socialists and we're constantly talking about how like, there's no way to build socialism without solidarity, but there's no way to build solidarity without relationship. And so yeah. You kind of gotta deal with the relationship relational relational aspect of it first. Um, so yeah, beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah. Um, another aspect that you talk about in your um poetry that's like quite a taboo topic is suicidality. Um, and I love the way that you write about it. I think that like suicide is such a taboo topic, and unfortunately, because it is taboo, it, that has the effect of leaving people very alone with their suicidality which is obviously not helpful to the situation. And I also think that suicidality is very misunderstood. Um, and you write in, in this book, every time I wanted to die, I meant I am willing to do anything to live. Um, and I strongly, strongly resonate with that. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, since you've written about this topic, um, what do you want people to know about suicide, both for the loved ones of people who are suicidal and also for those grappling with suicidal ideation themselves? I mean, we could talk for 10 hours on this. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, we actually could talk for 10 hours on any of these topics. I love talking to you. Um, so that line, you know, I almost cried when you read it. Um, and I was, it, which surprised me when you said, uh, every time I said I wanted to die, I meant I, I would do anything to live. And I think that, um, so first, when I started writing about suicidality and my own, 
um, experiences with trying to die and my own experiences with not wanting to live. I hadn't encountered any poetry about that at the time. I'm mm. sure it was out there, but it wasn't something that I was finding much of. And I wasn't hearing many people speak about uh, mental illness or suicidality in any way. Um, and so I decided to start writing about it. And when I started writing about it, it I was really afraid to. Um, mm. I was I was afraid because, you know, I mean, for example, when I started writing about it, um, I had had a suicide attempt. I mean, there were times that I was on stage with, I had to do a show once for youth and my arm was bandaged up and oh. it, was, it was, it was just so uh, intense. And to write about it, I think in the beginning I was kind of embarrassed about it. And my therapist had said, shame can't live in the light. And so I uh, just started writing about it. I started writing about it all the time. And I never had had any experiences with audiences um, the way I did after I started talking openly about my experiences with struggling to want to live. And I couldn't believe how many people have been coming to my shows and were feeling the same thing. So mm -hmm. I would do a performance that would last an hour and then I would be call it a merch line, but I would, I would be talking to people for two or three hours after the show, mm -hmm. just, just about that. And so I realized how much it, we needed it. Like, and then I think a lot of poets have written about it since then. Mm -hmm. And a lot of writers are, are, are writing about it. Thank goodness. Um, but it was never like, I never wanted to die. I just wanted life to not be so painful. Mm -hmm. Like I just wanted, I wanted life to, um, I wanted it, it to feel more tolerable. I wanted to learn how to tolerate it. I wanted to know if, I, I don't know. It was just, I was in such a hard place. And I think the permeating feeling for me, because this was also intersecting with illness. So I had chronic Lyme disease um, mm -hmm. for many years, which interestingly is just, we don't know if chemo took it away or what, but that is like gone now, thank goodness. But for years, it was part of my life. And I think I had so much shame about that. And I had a story that other people's lives would be better if I wasn't here, which I, I say to people and my life at the time looked like, oh, I'm doing so much or I'm helping people's lives, mm. like, you know, and, but no, like anybody can feel that way. Anybody can mm -hmm. feel that your, your other people's lives would be better if you weren't here. And I think a lot of the times when we think people are selfishly leaving this world, um, I think that they have a false story in their head that they're helping people out by going. If anybody's listening to this and thinking that there's no such thing, we, this world is always, always better with you here. And it's really hard to know that sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was writing a lot. Um, I was writing a lot about that. And I was also learning so much about shame and um and the idea this idea that shame is actually the closest state to death like when we are heavy and buried by shame it we feel so close uh, so close to the other side mm -hmm. in many ways that it's just it just can feel easy to go so a lot of my healing uh involved first of all understanding that other people felt it too 
Like, I, mm -hmm. I can't tell you, I, it's not like I ever wished anybody to not want to live as well, mm -hmm. but having conversations and realizing that I wasn't the only person feeling that made a world of difference for me because there's this, um, there is nothing more painful than a story that you are the only one going through the thing that you're going through. And it's mm -hmm. just so comforting to know you're not. And, um, and then just a process of year after year, I was learning to undo my shame more and more because I could really feel that for when it came to me wanting to leave this world, that always intersected, um, that always intersected with shame. Yeah. Mm, thank you. None of this is poetry. It is just the earth being who she is. Mm. Talk to us about your love for the earth. <laughs> <laughs> That is, I think that came from a line in a poem where I just like list a million facts about yeah. the earth. And I'm like, yeah. it's not poetry. <laughs> it's just facts. I'm not saying one poetic thing here. I'm just telling you what the earth is doing with her all, with her yes. own awesome self. You know, there's just like the facts of the world. They're the best writing prompts ever. I tell people, mm -hmm. if you have nothing to write about, write about the fact that cows have best friends, that whales will follow their injured <laughs> Whales will follow their injured friends to shore, like, and often take their own lives so that their whale friends won't be alone when they die. It's just like, there's just so much beauty here. And I live, I was thinking like this morning, um, this morning we had to call animal control because we had a four foot snake in our house. Wow. Like it somehow got in my house housemate's bedroom <laughs> and they had to come. I mean, they came out and they let it, they let it out right outside her door. <laughs> so we don't even know how it got in. It's probably going to be back in there tonight, but where I live, you know, I'll look out the front door and there'll be a bobcat on the front wow. step. I'll look out my window. There will be bears, like squirrels, like everything. And then I also live in Colorado right at the the and like the foothills of the rocky mountains which are mm. commonly just catching on fire and so we've packed up our house several times mm. and run from wildfires and so i just i just i mean i always loved the earth like i grew up um in the woods of rural maine and i, I grew up running through the woods and eating, you know, getting my lunch just from my back, like the forest behind my house, mm -hmm. like blueberries and strawberries and raspberries. And, um, and I'm just so in love with our world. And I think, especially since my diagnosis, it's almost as if I'm walking through this place as if it were a planet I never saw before. Mm -hmm. And I am just, because that's what happens with brevity. And mm -hmm. I think that's the gift of understanding how brief this life is that you just, you don't, ignore it anymore the rain isn't annoying the rain is what like a cloud falling from the sky into my hand like yeah. it's, it's just incredible and this sort of awe we were born with this mm. awe meg was just spent the last 10 days with her nephew and um her newborn nephew nephew and just seeing photos of his like his eyes and we were we we were not meant to outgrow our awe mm. and it's such fuel for living and it's such fuel for i think awe awe is one of the best cures for shame i mean mm. and and i don't it breaks my heart that we've been trained out of it that it, it isn't where a lot of us are seeing from anymore and um yeah i don't i, I know people meditate and 
quiet in a quiet room, but I, um, I meditate on my upstairs porch under this tree, um, under this tree that I actually personally met on a day that I was doing psilocybin. And I, the tree started talking to me and said, I am not an I, I am a we. <laughs> and uh, now this, this tree, this tree is my friend um, now. Wow. And I just meditate with this. With this yeah, yeah, with this tree. <laughs> I have I have another friend Ethel in my life, and I I was talking to her about this, and she said, "Well, Andrea, some of my best friends are rocks." And I was like, <laughs> "I love you, I love you so much." Oh my god! Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this video. It went around on social media, but it's Drew Barrymore like going outside in the rain, and it's like raining on her, and she's like, "You don't want to miss this. Like, if it's a rainy day, get outside. You don't want to miss this." Wow, it's, it's so beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I know. And I think that we are supposed like, yes, just this. Uh, and that's a large part of, you know, what has changed about my work. It's um, and and this poem that you speak of, uh, uh, the one where you say it's just the earth being who she mm -hmm. is, that that actually was the beginning of a shift in my writing, because prior to that, I was trying to. Um, sort of impact the world positively by by saying, um, just talking about all the horrors that were happening. Mm. And I have changed my writing. And, and not that that isn't important to do, like telling the truth about what is happening is, is vital in many ways. But I've also been um, exploring like what leaves the most impact so for example if you're wanting to write about like the horrors of factory farms and you're if you're wanting to say you're wanting people to get to go vegan uh, i'm curious about this and I've, I've been curious about this for the last two years constantly um what will make what what is most likely to create change to tell people the horrors of factory farms or to say the cows have best friends. I don't know. Mm. I guess it depends on the person, but I think creating art from both of those places is really necessary. And I've, I, I keep exploring like what reaches people, what does doesn't, what reaches people long term, and and what doesn't. And also, what can I handle? Because I used to spend hours and hours and hours just sobbing while writing, just sobbing, totally. and it just you know, deplete myself. And then I started writing about the world I imagined, like, you know, because we can kind of only go where we first imagined and we have to imagine something, I think sometimes to get there. And so I like writing that imagines, um, a kinder world, a more loving mm -hmm. world. And maybe we can, you know, like I said before, write it and then sort of live in that direction. Mm. So this is the question that um, I mentioned earlier I was going to come back to, and I think there's a lot of things you've said in this interview that tie into what I'm going to ask you about. But basically, there's this aspect of your work that I really, really resonate with that is in alignment with what I call the unflinching gaze and the willingness to be with the hard things in life, to actually like be with them and... Um, and, and like face them. And you were talking mm -hmm. about it when you were talking about death and like the idea that like what you're doing is not toxic positivity. Like it's a totally different thing when you're willing to actually like face things in the weight of what they are. Um, 
with all that comes with that, with the grief that comes with that, with the pain that comes with that, but also with the joy and 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 the positive things that come with really being with what is. Um, and I think that humans, like in order for us to really like heal and to be at peace, we need this like unflinching gaze. We need to be able to be seen in all of that. And I think it's something that is super missing in a lot of people's lives um, because so many of the things that we live, whether it's like suicidality, like we were just talking about, whether it's illness, whether it's trauma, whether it's like many of these things, those topics are also like culturally taboo. And mm-hmm. so people feel uncomfortable with them. And so with that, it creates a situation where people feel um, alone with it. And um, there's several like lines in your work that were speaking to me about this, but um, one in particular, you were saying a difficult life is not less worth living than a gentle one. Um, And you also said in a different poem, when I learned the storm was inevitable, I made it my medicine. Um, And I think that like, people have this idea about like, if they had another life, you know, it would have been better a life with less suffering, but the life that you have is this one. Um, and so I really see that kind of philosophy in your writing. And I just wanted to give you the invitation to talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, thank you. Um, I remember sometimes I'll write something. My writing always surprises me, you know, I, I which I want it to do. I don't ever mm. want to come. I, I don't ever want to come to the page to write down what I know. How boring. I I come to the page to to figure out what I don't know and and explore it and um be surprised by what comes out. Because I always think every writer, every artist, we're so you're just opening to some, you know, the whole divine universe sort of throwing stuff at you. Sometimes I think my grandma writes half of my poems, um, who is no longer alive. (laughs) And so I think about this thing that you're talking about, and and I've written about it before. It's sort of like people would say that I was um, maybe having rose-colored glasses, and I I, I wrote about it saying, I I don't have rose-colored glasses, I'm just refusing to ignore the thorns loving heart. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is I think that I did, and I'll speak for myself, I went through life for a lot of years um, thinking that things weren't supposed to happen. If a challenge happened, I thought this isn't supposed to be happening or this is unfair. It's unfair that I have this um, sickness. It's unfair that I have this thing. And I think that for whatever reason, most of us were raised to think that if anything happened that wasn't just pleasurable, it shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. And to get rid of those shouldn'ts and to get rid of the idea of fair for me, that was so liberating uh, to my life. It just, it, it freaking changed. It changed everything. So that was the first thing, because when you're in the, it's not supposed to be happening. I'd let people, I'd let myself have that if that did anything good for me. But all it does is just make me feel like life is against me, you know? And so um, I want to talk directly about the hard shit in life. Like I want to talk about, I mean, and even, you know, watching friends, watching friends not be able to be around me because of my diagnosis. Like that, 
I, I'm talking openly about this. I'm talking openly about death. I'm talking openly about my own death. And, um, and the thing that makes me feel best is people like, well, what could I do, uh, to like, you know, what, could I do? And I'll tell them, well, you could talk openly about your own death. Cause I'm not the, <laughs> like, I'm not the only one, like, you know, running around mm -hmm. with, I'm not the only one, uh, who's mortal here. So just like, I, I don't know what else to say, except I'm not turning my head from the dark to see the light. I'm, I'm seeing the light in the dark and looking through it and um and i just want to face everything like i feel off if i'm turning my head away from stuff it just i feel haunted by it i feel i feel haunted by what i'm not looking at so i always want to look at the thing and i always i, I don't want to battle what is i think mm -hmm. it was like eckhart tolle who said the isness of life like this is um, and I've not even been able to use the word, for example, I've not been able to use, I've not been able to say fuck cancer. I've not been able to say I'm in a battle or I'm in a fight. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is, this is my life. And so I'm going to make of it, uh, as much beauty as I can. And I think, um, yeah, when the storm was inevitable, I made it my medicine. And so it doesn't mean that I'm not I want to do everything I can to support my health and mm -hmm. my wellness, but um, I don't want to deny the isness of what is happening, and I don't want to spend waste my energy fighting what, yeah, fighting with the conditions of my life, if that makes sense. But that doesn't mean I'm not at the same time working to make my life as healthy and as wonderful as possible. No, absolutely. I totally understand what you're saying. And I see it so much in your work. And it's something I just think the world needs so much more of, you know, so thank you for sharing that. And yeah, because I think it's maybe part of capitalism too, that we've come to think of our lives as like products that we want to have the good life and whatever the fuck that means, you know? And so yeah. anytime something happens that is like bad, even like really bad, but even kind of bad, like anything, it's like as if we are like devaluing our life, that it's like not a good life. Um, and I'm like, it's your life. Mm -hmm. It's the one precious life that you have here right now. And like, it could not be more perfect than what it is. Like, it's always going to yes. include some crazy shit, but it's your fucking life, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. My therapist would say, what if this is perfect? And I remember when I was, I mean, I've been seeing her for so many years. And <laughs> when I was young, so I'd be much. like, this isn't fucking perfect. <laughs> this isn't perfect. But <laughs> but she was offering it to me. And it's it's something that I know not to say to other people, really. Mm. It, but, <laughs> you know, that's the thing. That's the balance that I'm trying to figure out because of yeah. like, these yeah, yeah. things that help me so yes. much. Like, I, I can't put them on other people the stuff that I say to myself or that I I, I feel fuel for myself could be shaming for somebody else mm -hmm. and but I do say that like with every single thing in my life right now I say what if this is perfect and I just have to assume it is like I just have mm. to assume it is um, and I think people fear that idea because they think okay so if you decide that cancer is for that can cancer for example is perfect then you're not going to do anything to try to, and it doesn't work like that at no. all. In fact, the more I decide something is perfect, the more I have the actual 
energy and wellness to change something for the better. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Speaking of, um, I don't know, looking at things head on and, you know, being realistic about the world. Um, this is fucking canceled. So we are going to ask you about cancel culture. Um, and we want to, we want you to talk to us about the impact of cancel culture on creatives and on human beings generally. Um, I think for us, one of the things that resonates in your work a lot is how you welcome like the difficult experiences of being human. Um, and I feel like cancel culture is such a, a rejection of people and their humanity and their mm-hmm. complexity and messiness. Um, tell us about that. Well, I have so much, so much, uh, so much I could say on this. Um, absolutely, think it's a rejection of people's humanity. Um, I'll I'll go back and say this: th- this is so important to me that Clementine. I think that you and I um, started to connect when I wrote a piece that I posted all over the internet called uh, "The Cost of Callout Culture." And, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think I that was it. when it was really, it was really good. That's when we first started talking about, I think that's when we first connected. I'm having yes. another hot flash and it's not about cancel culture. It's about having, <laughs> it's about having no ovaries. Um, so let me see, where should, where should I begin in wrangling this whole thing in? Um, and something that people didn't know at the time was, and I didn't tell anybody why I posted that, only my friends knew. But I had just received word that um, I was having a recurrence and I thought I was going to, at that time, I thought I was probably going to be dead in a couple of months. And so that was so important to me. And this has, this has been such a, uh, I have so many feelings about this and the toxicity of cancel culture and call out culture um, that when I thought I was going to die, that was what I had to share. And I'm like, I'm not dying without putting this out there. And, um, and, uh, its impact on artists was something that I was writing about because for myself, I, I noticed the ways that, you know, I was in my forties and I had been doing this for years and I was noticing the ways that I was muting myself. I was noticing the ways that I had been, um, just feeling like, okay, if I don't say this thing perfect, my career is over. If I don't, yeah. mm-hmm. and I was getting, I mean, over the years, I was getting called out all the time because I, as a political writer, I mean, I was doing things that people didn't like constantly. And I mean, almost daily, somebody would come at me online and, and tell me about something that I was doing that meant that I was a terrible person. And so it was its impact on my physical health, like its impact yeah. on my body, on my mind, on my spirit. Like over the years, as it started to get worse and worse, um, my my health, I watched my health like dip, just get worse every year, my stress level worse. I was, um, I, I couldn't manage my anxiety. I was having panic attacks all the time. Um, and what it did to my writing, like, God, I felt like I, I was like, how when you're writing and trying to be perfect, when you're writing and trying to not say anything that would upset anybody, like it is such, at that point, you're not even being a creative. Like you, you, uh-huh. it's like you're a machine. How do I, how do I, um, how do I just, <laughs> I don't even know what words to put for it, but I was also over the years watching so many youth 
uh, young people and not just youth, but watching people quit writing. I was watching mm-hmm. people like, I'm not going to say anything if because I have to say it perfect to say it and I don't trust myself to say it perfect. So I was watching artists like just no longer write anymore. I watched more writers quit writing in the last years than ever, ever before. And, um, and then I was watching activists, like real activists in my life who I, I had watched just transform whole cities, um, get called out for something small. And that is just, then they're gone, then they're wiped off. And so I'll, I'll say some more stuff on it. Like the, the pressure to, of, I think of it as a homogenization Mm -hmm. of thought, like this, Mm -hmm. this pressure to think what everybody else thinks. And that just is not the definition of an artist. Like it's, we have to think like inventors and you Mm -hmm. have to be creating something new. And I don't know why we don't know, like why folks haven't figured it, it out yet, that if we are all thinking the same thing, how will we evolve? How will we mm-hmm. possibly evolve and grow and learn if we're thinking the same thing or if we're only talking to people who think all the same things that yeah. we do, you know? And um, so, and then additionally, I had loved ones close to me in my life who I, I was watching getting canceled. And so I was watching people lose their housing, lose their health care, lose their livelihood. And they were commonly being canceled by people who were doing some fairly horrific things, who were being outwardly cruel, who were creating um, Twitter accounts to make fun of people's hair. And this was part of the Mm -hmm. appropriate way to call somebody out. And I'll back up and say, there was a time in my life where I thought, this is probably the right way to do things. And I just haven't caught on to why (laughs) <laughs> I, I haven't caught on to why this is, <laughs> you know, I haven't learned enough about why this is the right way. Right. And I'm, right. I'm not, che- I'm not checking my whiteness here. I'm not checking my ableism. I'm not checking my class. Like there's, there was just so many lists of things yeah. where I, I just assumed, okay, I haven't learned this. And so I think that there's a lot of, and I can look back and say, I was really trying at that point. So I know that there were a lot of people still canceling people mm-hmm. and still thinking this is the way to be that think that they are doing the most loving thing, the thing that is actually going to help the world. And I think that there are also people doing it who who do not believe that, yes. who are just in pain and causing others to be in pain. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I could talk about this forever, but I, I just, I... I I believe in looking at people as whole people. And I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and and this would be in some ways a lot easier if we were living in community and we could, you know, and, um, and living, but where we are now and the internet and God, it's just so easy to, it's so easy to ruin somebody. And, um, and I want it not to be, which is why I'm really grateful for what y'all do. It's really profound that like when you literally thought you were basically about to die is when you decided to like sort of come out um, against this shit. Like, because it's like, I imagine that that was because it is so frightening to do so that it was sort of like part of your, almost like your, your like last will and testament to fucking speak up about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had been, so it had been a gradual process of the years of the years prior to my diagnosis where I had, I had, I had, 
a few years before that said, fuck this, this is not the uh -huh. way, this is not the way. And I think folks thought I was being hyper protective of individuals I loved. And that wasn't what was happening. I'm like, this is doing nothing good. Like, I don't, I don't know who's looking at this and thinking that this is ultimately going to be what's healing because the separating people by good and bad and then deciding a, a behavior is who somebody is. And it's just, it just was never anything that I believed in. And, um, and then, yeah. And I, I thought that, yeah, but you're right. I was like, that's what, that's what I'm, that's what I have to say right now is mm. cancel culture is shit. Mm. <laughs> and I think that there's, there's so many people, lots of people that we've talked to, you know, and that we know who are these like artists and creatives who are like, yeah, just like unflinchingly looking at the difficult things in life and are really like grappling with like difficult questions and thinking deeply about things. And they, they're terrified to talk about it. You know, yeah. it's like the one thing that they're just like, they can't, they can't even address because it's so scary to do so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like we talked about this on the podcast more early on, and I don't think we've talked about it in a while, but like when we started this podcast, we felt like we were literally going to die. Mm -hmm. Like we were just like, the, the anxiety was so through the roof and- We recorded episodes that and, we were put yeah, up. Yeah, like, we were just, because like, and I was already canceled, like, but mm -hmm. I was still like to actually, I'm going to be canceled on levels yet unimaginable to myself. And I was correct about that. But um, it's like, also after because like I, I relate to your story so much like I'm also like I was in that world for so long that I was so hyper vigilant in the way that I spoke and one of the things about being a writer you know is that you can edit your work so I would constantly be hyper vigilantly editing my work to just to try to make it as like mm -hmm. just so exactly in line with the rules whatever those rules were but speaking off the top of your head on a podcast was like so much more anxiety producing for me because like I was like oh my god who knows what I might say anything could just blur it out of my mouth yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean and oh then, I like... know I know and then <laughs> I like god and you know I'll be doing a podcast now and somebody will mispronoun me on the podcast and my relationship with my pronouns has changed so significantly since my diagnosis I have a very different relationship with my gender and so I don't, I don't have a pain response to any pronoun somebody calls me, but if somebody um, mispronounced me on a podcast, I, I feel like I want to reach to the screen and just grab them and hug them oh because I know what's going to happen. <laughs> like wow. I, just, I know what's going to happen. And then afterwards I just send them an email and I'm like, listen, I don't care about pronouns. Uh, I don't mean I don't care about pronouns. I don't have a pained re relationship with my pronouns at this point. I do not care what pronouns people use for me at this point. But if you use that pronoun for me in the podcast, your life is going to be a mess oh for uh, the next week. So please edit that out for your sake. Um, yeah, <laughs> I just feel so so, so protective of, of people just making uh, an error and... Um, yeah absolutely yeah so for the last question I kind of wanted to ask you a weird one um because it came up actually in our last interview as well um I wanted to ask you about aliens because aliens <laughs> aliens are in the news right now I want to know I want to know is it because I wrote them about them in my book did you yes, hear about <laughs> yes you were talking about aliens in the book and we've been talking about aliens because there's aliens in the news and we were asking the last guest that we interviewed also about aliens. So I was like, whoa, Andrew's talking about aliens. So I, what do you think about the aliens? Well, okay, so <laughs> we, 
What's so wild about this question is I was just, I, so I think a lot about aliens and <laughs> I've had, so I, I can't go into the details right now because I have to tell this story in depth for anybody to believe it and for anybody to understand like the whole history of it. But I have a wild, wild, wild story about aliens um, from my youth and then from my whole I have I have a gigantic story about aliens that needs to be its a whole freaking wow. memoir. And a few years ago, I I talked to my book agent about it and I said, "Listen, I'm going to write this whole thing about aliens." And she's like, "Basically, Andrew, if you do that, you're going to kill your career. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to kill your career." And I said, "Oh shit, now I really have to do it. <laughs> now I really have to do it." And then the other day, I was my friend was reading my astrological chart and she's like, it says here that you have a big secret that is uh, very creative, like the story that you have to tell. And I'm like, it's about the aliens. I'm going to have to tell the aliens. But what I'll tell you for right now, um, I <laughs> absolutely believe, like, absolutely. I know aliens exist. I know they're coming. I know they're coming here. I feel for sure it's going to come out. If like, I, I feel sure it's going to come out. I feel like it's already come out. Um but that's my feeling about aliens. And I'll tell you another <laughs> funny story about it is, do y'all know about the golden record? No. I don't think so. Okay. So I think it was around 1975, the U.S. sent this golden record into space. And what it was supposed oh, yeah. to be, yeah, it was communicate yeah, yeah. what it is to be human, like what it is to be, uh, that we are here. This is what we're about. And it wasn't real. This is what humanity is about. Interestingly, like on, the, really on the Voyager probe, right? Yeah. And it was like, but really it was like what, you know, cis white America is about. That was what yeah. the golden record was at right. that time. Well, a couple of years ago, I got contacted by these folks in South Africa saying that they were making a new golden record and they are sending it into uh, space to, um, to basically communicate with life from, to see if there is life elsewhere. And, uh, and they asked me to be part of talking oh about communicating what it is to be human. And it's this also this educational project because it's trying to inspire youth to think about what it is to be human and, um, and to communicate what it is to be human so we could understand our hu humanity in a new way. It's actually a really beautiful project, but Anyway, I wrote a piece for that and I've been talking, meeting with these folks and there's a lot of scientists and it's been fascinating to create this whole new record, this whole new record and to try to write a piece where I'm explaining what is, is it to be human. Um, anyway, uh, I haven't, I don't know if this is secret or not, but in June, um, that poem goes on this like little, I don't know chip and it's going to go live on the moon forever and then uh, the following year the golden record is going to be going into space but that's aside from the point all i'll tell y'all for now is yes yes i <laughs> believe in aliens i um and i i'm gonna tell a whole big story about it soon and i want to do it in a really creative funny way because it's a wild story and uh i can only tell it with humor and um, and I, I believe aliens are here. I don't think there's any way they're here to harm us. And um, and I think it's rad that we're that people are starting to wake up to this because there have been whistleblowers for a long time. In my book, I write about this dude named Paul Hellyer, who was um, a prime minister in Canada. 
And uh, he was for years, for years and years and years, desperately trying to get um, the U.S. to come out and talk about what they were what they were covering up. So, yeah. Wow. That's what I think I'm so him. glad I asked. Yeah, so so I'm are, so glad you did, too. <laughs> you're, you're like you're officially in contact with aliens. Um, I, I'm a fish. I mean, like they live in my house. <laughs> no, I mean, you're sending your work is being sent. to. Oh, aliens. yes. Yes, yes. It is being sent to the aliens, but you're I one mean, of like a very small number of people who's officially in contact with the aliens. And I think I think the funny thing about it is, is I haven't told these folks uh, with the golden record that I don't actually think that we have to send anything too far to be in contact with them. Oh I think God. that we could just be like, hey, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know. So what I expect is going to happen is I expect I'm going to write my whole story about why I believe in aliens. And then, um, and then my uh, career will burn to a, a crisp, which is fine. And then sometime years after I die, people will be like, oh, Andrea was right. Andrea was right. So, Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Andrea was right. Um, I love that. Um, Andrea, can you tell people where they can find out more um, about aliens, but also about your work um, and how they can support your work? <laughs> yeah, uh, so I write a I, I write a newsletter on Substack called Things That Don't Suck, um, and which has been just so freaking life saving in many ways to do because it just is constantly leading me in the direction of appreciation and gratitude, and um, and mostly where I'm sharing my I don't know what my website is andreagibson.org, and <laughs> I share a lot on uh, Instagram and tiktok and facebook and not really twitter that much anymore i don't mm -hmm. it bores me. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it just bores me i don't yeah. maybe maybe i'm too long-winded i don't know um, <laughs> it's not for me yeah feel that um yo thank you so much this was like such an amazing interview it was so nice to be able to chat with you yeah, thank really, you really both. Beautiful. Thank you both so much. And just so you know, like me only having two hot flashes in a podcast is a record. So it, it, it was we lovely. welcome the hot flashes here was, at fucking cancel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, y'all. I really I'm so grateful for what you're doing in the world. And it's just wonderful talking to you and, and keep doing keeping your rad selves. Thank awesome. you so much. So it's great to talk to you.